says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper and even those who challenge God escape. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. And the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely a day is coming, it will burn like the, sorry, surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be, will be stubble, and that day is coming that will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like, scar, uh, like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked, and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave to him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah. Before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. So how about we pray? Father God, again, we thank you for the great things that we've learnt from Malachi. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you're a God who has not left us alone without your word. We pray that as we read it today, that you would teach us about yourself and teaching us about yourself, you would also be at work by your spirit that we might keep the things that we learn. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And friends, in order to uh, start off this morning, uh, I want you to participate. What we're going to do is divide the room in two, and uh, each group of people are going to read a passage from Scripture that I'm going to have, uh, that I've got projected on the screen here for you. Um, now, what I'm going to do is we'll split the room this way. Okay, so that line down there, everyone over here is Group One. Okay, and everyone over here is Group Two. So. Um, how about we get started group one, can st- what I'm going to do is group one will stand, they'll say their part then they'll sit then group two will stand and say their part then they'll, uh, then they'll remain standing and group one will join them and then you'll all together say the one for the last section, that makes sense? so group one, sit down group two, stand up and stay your bit and then both groups stand and we'll say the last one together so group one you can stand up And uh, let's give it a go. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction, for I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. 
and this group. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, if to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. And together, this day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Thank you very much. Please sit down. Now, friends, this uh, two or three days we have spoken lots about covenants and the book of Deuteronomy that we've just read a section from is all about covenants. And at the end of his ministry, Moses sets out the covenant of God before his people. And he tells them it's all about choices. And that's why I got you to do this little interaction together. It's all about choices. You can choose where you're going to go, you know, what side of the covenant you're going to be on, how you're going to react to the covenant. It's about choosing God and his ways or refusing God and his ways. And then he tells them each of the choices you make has consequences. Choosing to live according to God's covenant means blessing. Choosing not to live according to the covenant means cursing. Now, I want you to remember that today. Now, you'll see in my outline that I put some more background information and underneath it, covenant. Now, friends, um, you can forget about that heading that says covenant. I've spoken so much about covenant in the last four talks that if you haven't got any idea about it now, you never will. (laughs) So, let's move on and let's do the next little bit of background, which is the day of the Lord. Now, during the time of the Old Testament uh, and the Old Testament prophets, they began to start to use a new term and the first person to use it was a shepherd prophet called Amos. And they began to call this, they began to speak about this thing called the day of the Lord. Sometimes they just abbreviated it to that day or the day. Um, And what they did is they they spoke about it in such a way that you, the the day of the Lord could, could be viewed in two ways. Um, The day of the Lord was a day when God would spectacularly come into history, intervene in history and do something dramatic. It was a day, on the one hand, when he would save his people. But it wasn't only that. And the prophets wanted to make this very clear, you see. It was also a day when God would intervene to judge his enemies. But no matter what, it was a day when God would reveal his righteousness And that revelation of God's righteousness would be judgment on the one hand and salvation on the other. Both were part of the day of the Lord. Now the reason I'm telling you this is because Malachi uses the language of the day of the Lord throughout his book. He's used it in chapter 3 already and he's going to use it in chapter 4. And so to understand it a bit, we're going to have a look at this passage in detail. That's where we're going. We're going to talk about the day of the Lord and what it means. Okay, let's start with Malachi 3.13. The first thing I want you to notice is this passage speaks about two responses people can have to God's covenant. The first response is to be one of, is one of scoffing or ridiculing God's covenant. Did you see it there when we read it in chapter 3? You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? 
You've said, it's futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out God's requirements, going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? Now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evil doers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. Can you see what's going on here? These people are saying, in verse 13, God, is, God says, first of all, his people have said harsh things against him. In verse 14, he tells us what the, what, what the harsh things are. God's people are saying, look, it is absolutely useless. There's no benefit in serving God. It is futile because it does not pay to serve God. After all, when you look around at the world, so often it appears as though the arrogant are blessed and evildoers prosper and those who challenge God escape. And in their world, it looked often like that as well. That's what scoffers are saying. They're saying, there's no reason to keep the covenant because keeping the covenant doesn't pay. The second response is recorded in verse 16. Look at it there. Then those who feared the Lord, they talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard. And a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. So what is the alternative response? If the first one is to scoff against God and his covenant, the second one is to show itself in a desire to honour God and his name. So verse 16 tells us that these people actually get together. They hold a sort of mini-conference where they, where they talk with each other and they, they work out, look, we want to honour God, what can we do? They write their, name, their names down and record that they are ones who put their name on the line for God. They are those who fear God, they are those who want to honour his name. In other words, do you know what they do? They go public. Right? They go public with their desire to serve God. They say, they're saying to everyone, we're writing our names down, this is it. We're among those who want to fear the Lord. Now look at verses 18 to chapter 4, verse 3. In these verses, we're told how God responds to these two sets of responses to him and his covenant. First, verse 18 tells us that God distinguishes between the two groups. Look at verse 18. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. So what God does is he distinguishes them. Not unlike uh, Jesus says that God will do on the last day. Remember the the uh, sheep and the goats in uh, Matthew chapter 25. God distinguishes between the righteous and the wicked, between scoffers and those who fear God. Let's look at the first group of people. They're the group we heard about in verse 15. They are those who scoff against God. That is, they scoff against the idea of serving God. And in verse 18 they're described as those who are the wicked. Those who don't serve God. So there are three words used of of them. Scoffing, the wicked, those who don't serve God. And chapter 4 verse 1 describes their fate using the language of the day of the Lord. Look at what it says. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace and the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day is coming that will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left. You notice that two extra words used about the scoffers. They're the arrogant and the evildoers. Those who scoff against serving God will experience the day of the Lord like as a day of judgment. It will be a day of fierce heat. God will consume them in fire. But now let's look at that second group of people. In verse 16 we're told that, and here's some other words used of them, they are those who feared God. Verse 18, they're described as the righteous or those who serve God. In other words, they're people who keep the covenant. And God's response to them is described in two sets of verses. Look at verse 17. 
They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. There's another couple of words about them, God's treasured possession. I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. Now, do you notice a few things that are going on here? First, the reference to the day of the Lord is there again. God speaks about a day when he will come in judgment. However, for this group of people, it will not be a day of judgment for them because he'll spare them in his compassion. He'll be just like a man who spares his own son in the face of an onslaught of some sort. The second thing to notice is the term treasured possession. I wonder if you've heard it elsewhere in the Old Testament. It occurs in Exodus chapter 19 where it's spoken about all of Israel. But here, it's not all of Israel, it's just some of Israel, some of God's people. And that's because these are people among God's people who behave as though they really are in covenant with God. These are members who do what the covenant's all about. That is, they actually live as though they are God's treasured possession. They fear God. And God is clear about such people. They will be his, verse 17. But let's go to chapter 4 as well. Look at verses 2 and 3. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing on its wings. That's the back of your t-shirts. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. And you will trample down the wicked. There will be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day when I do these things. Look at how this second group of people is described. They are those who revere or fear God's name. And look at how God responds to them. What he's saying is this whole new era is going to dawn in history and the sun of righteousness will rise with healing on its wings. And can you see what he's saying? He's saying you'll be like young, healthy, fattened calves skipping about with lots of energy. I wonder if you've ever seen one of those sorts of scenes where you're driving through a, a dusty, dirty place and suddenly you come across this lush green place with cattle in it. And it is good and rich and the cattle are fat and, you know, and then their calves, well, when they're born, they just skip around. You know, it's just wonderful. If you've ever seen anything like that, it is just spectacular. And that's what it's going to be like for those who fear the Lord. You know, they'll be running around in paddocks, all free, all rich, with everything at hand, with everything that they need. The Lord's great day won't be a day of fear and darkness for those people. It will be a day of rescue and great joy and release. When the ashes of the scoffers are lying on the ground in the next door paddock, those who fear the Lord will be filled with joy at the Lord's presence and rescue. It's a grand picture, isn't it? Let's sum up what we've found. Malachi has told us that God is a faithful God. He's made a covenant with his people and in that covenant he promises both judgment and mercy. Remember, his disposition is toward mercy, not toward judgment. He will be faithful to his promise. He's a faithful God. We've heard him say that time and time again through the book of Malachi, that he loves his people, that he's faithful to them, that he's loyal to them. God is a faithful God. But these verses are clear that this faithful God demands a faithful people. He looks for a response for his people. He looks for them to be faithful as well. You can see that in verse 4. Look at what it says. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave for him at Horeb for all of Israel. Now let me introduce you to that word a little, the word remember. In the Old Testament the word remember doesn't mean 
oh, I forgot that yesterday, but today I remember it. Okay? It doesn't mean that. To, to remember in the Old Testament means to remember and act. So in the Old Testament, we're constantly told God remembers his covenant. And when he remembers his covenant, he does something. So when he remembers his covenant in Exodus 2, it's not as though he's thought, oh, I've forgotten about Abraham for a little while, and today I remember, and oh, oh, perhaps I'd better do something. No, it's that he makes a decision to do, to do something. He acts. He remembers his relationship with his people and acts upon it. So here, God is saying, that's what I want my people to do with my covenant. I want them to remember the covenant. To remember the covenant is to remember the law. It's to remember that all Israel said at the the foot of Mount Horeb, they said, well, yes, if that's God's law, we'll keep it, and then proceeded not to keep it at all. And God is saying, I want you to be people who not only say, yes, we'll keep it, but remember it in the same way as I remember covenants. That is, do it. It's to rem- that's what God is seeking, people who fear him, who love him, who keep his law, his decrees and his statutes. God is a God who's entered into relationship with his people. He seeks a response from them of covenant faithfulness and covenant love. And covenant faithfulness is shown in keeping God's law. And that's nothing, that, that's old and new. Do you remember in the New Testament, This is the love of God that you keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. There's nothing new in the new covenant in one sense. It's exactly the same. Anyway, in verses 5 and 6, God goes on to say he'll give one more warning. Have a look at it there. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Just a word of explanation here. Remember how I said judgment is God's alien work? His strange work, he almost has to be dragged kicking and screaming to do it. Well, here it is, you see, he's giving them yet another chance in a long line of chances. So he's going to send them the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Now, looking at these two verses, there's two difficult things to understand. So first, you need to understand the sentence... He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now, I need to say a few things about this sentence. First, there's no exact parallel to this sentence anywhere in the Old Testament. So this is a new one on page, last page of the Old Testament, as it were. There's something we've never encountered before. Second, there's some tricky words in it. For example, the word that's translated uh, as turn, here is the same word that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament for restore or bring back. And the word to here is the Hebrew word that usually means on or upon. So you could translate it this way. And this is, you know, an Andrew Reid special. It goes like this. You might want to write it down. He will restore the hearts of parents upon children and the hearts of children upon their parents. Okay, he will restore the hearts of parents upon children and the hearts of children upon parents, their parents. Can you see what I'm saying? I think he's saying something like this. Um, He will restore the parents as well as the children and the children as well as the parents. Does that make sense? That's a sort of rolling return. Okay, God's going to restore whole families, one upon another. It's going to be an overwhelming turning. The goal of the prophet's ministry, in other words, is to turn all of society back to God. With that in mind, we need to think about the reference to Elijah. 
In the Old Testament, prophets were the people who reminded God's people of the covenant and their obligation as God's covenant people. That's why God's covenant people often didn't like it when a prophet turned up, because they reminded them of things that they ought to be doing. One of the greatest and earliest Old Testament prophets of the covenant was Elijah, and he kept doing it, and kings didn't like him very much. What I think is being said here is that God is going to send someone to do what Elijah did. That is, he will send someone before the great and terrible day of the Lord and his goal will be to restore the hearts of all of society back to God. Not just a few elect ones, but everyone if he could. The hearts of parents and children upon children. The whole of the book of Malachi has been about how the heart of God's people is turning away from him. Well, God is sending one more final warning That warning has a goal to restore God's people back to him. But if they do not return, as a result of Elijah the prophet coming, then there's only one possibility left. God will come in judgment. And as verse 6 says, he will come and strike the land with a curse. Here again is a reference to the covenant. You see, in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, which we read earlier on in 29, Those chapters were clear, weren't they? That if God's people didn't act rightly, by the covenant, God would send the covenant curses upon them. And the covenant curses spelt out in Deuteronomy and Leviticus are very clear. God will lay waste the land. And that's what this verse means here. It's a terrifying way to end the Old Testament, isn't it? Terrifying. Because there's a one last chance coming. So there are these verses in a nutshell. Now you can see I think all of those verses belong together. Most commentators don't think they belong together, but I think they flow very neatly and tidily. Now I guess the big question is when and where they were fulfilled. You see, there's no record of their fulfilment in the Old Testament. But Jesus refers to this passage, and you might like to look in your Bibles at Matthew 17. So Matthew 17... In verses 1 to 8 of Matthew 17, we are told that Jesus is taken up to a high mountain and transfigured. And when he's there, he is in the company of Moses and Elijah, who fascinatingly are the only two people clearly named in the last chapter of Malachi. Anyway, this doesn't escape the notice of the disciples. And so as they're coming down the mountain, Jesus talks with them. And look at what he says. Look at verses 9 to uh, 9 following. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Hence they're hearing Malachi. You see, they've seen Moses and Elijah. Springs to mind Malachi. The links start falling into place. And Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Can you see what's happening? They appear to be quoting their teachers of the law, who are alluding to Malachi 4, notice what Jesus says in response. He says, John the Baptist, is that Elijah of Malachi 4? Jesus is clear, you see. John the Baptist is the one who fulfills this prophecy. He is the Elijah spoken of here. 
So let's think about what that means because when you think about it, it becomes rather awesome. The first implication is absolutely astounding. Look at Malachi 4, remember Malachi 4, look at what it says. It clearly says that Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Jesus is affirming that he has come. And that appears to mean that he's actually affirming that he is the Lord himself coming. He is Yahweh coming to the world. And that appears to be the point of Malachi 3.1 that we read yesterday as well. And that point is potent. It is very strong. Jesus is the Lord of the Old Testament himself. Come. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is God. It's a strong affirmation of the deity of Christ. But that's not all. You see, if John the Baptist was Elijah, and if John the Baptist ushered in the day of the Lord, then what is Jesus saying? He's saying we're standing on the very threshold of the day of the Lord. That is exactly what Peter says in Acts chapter 2 after the death and resurrection of Jesus and ascension. When he quotes Joel 2, he says, we're in the last days. This is it. It's as though the last days has sort of been made into an accordion type structure. Right? It's been stretched out. You've pulled it out. It's become not one day, but a long series of days. That's exactly what Peter is saying. That means we people here today are in the last days. We're standing on the edge of God's great and climactic intervention in history. Now here comes the crunch. You see, if you follow the logic up till this point, then stick with me to the final point. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. So 2 Peter... Chapter 3. And what I'm going to do is just read it to you and I want you to notice some things that maybe you've never noticed before. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 13. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the Holy Prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your Apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come. Hello? Do you hear the reference, right? I think it's an allusion to Malachi myself. In the last day, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires, and they will say, where is this coming, he promised. Do you hear the same? You know, do you hear them... Having a go at, you know, is there such a God? Can we serve him? All those sorts of things. Um, ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the, time, by the same word the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. Hear the reference to fire? being kept for the day of judgment, here the reference to the day of the Lord, and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not at wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Remember in Malachi... He sends one final warning, so he's reluctant to judge and so he holds off as much as he can. So it is here. 
He is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. Like a thief, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Do you hear the reference to dust and ashes and so on? That allusion to everything just being laid waste? Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, where we'll skip around like calves, as it were. Now, friends... I hope you've heard all those references. I've tried to sort of... They're just echoes of Malachi that sort of sit behind the passage, I think. What I want you to notice is that Peter takes the sorts of things that were applied to Jews in the Old Testament and what he does here is he applies them to all the world. It's as though he's gone sort of eschatological, cosmic, right? He's gone right out there with it. He's taken what was in the Old Testament just to Jews, applied it to the world. And this is where I want you to see his logic. You see... Even today here in this room, I suspect there are some of you who are not Christians. And you might think that since you're not Christians and you're not Jews, that the things in this book of Malachi don't apply to you. But what Peter says here does apply to you. He makes that clear here. You see, you are the creation of God. And as the creation of God, you you owe this God your allegiance and loyalty. And this passage is clear. If you don't give him that allegiance and loyalty, then in the end, though he's reluctant to do it, only one fate awaits. Though he's long-suffering, not wanting any to perish, there is the terrifying prospect of facing God's judgment. However, remember, God's desire, the reason he's so forbearing, is that he wants to offer mercy and forgiveness. He's long-suffering, not wanting any to perish. And for that reason, he sent his son into the world to enable the people to be forgiven. So today, if you're not Christian, I want to urge you to turn back to God by believing in Jesus. God loves you. He sent his only son to die in your place for you. He is waiting for you to return. But I want to warn you that he won't wait forever. He is long-suffering, but even his patience has an end. So please turn back to God. In the Old Testament, you did this by fearing the Lord. In the New Testament, the equivalent of fearing the Lord is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. I urge you to flee from God's coming wrath and to put your faith and your trust in Jesus if you are not Christian. But I want to have a word to those of you who are Christian which I guess is the vast bulk of you. You see, Peter wasn't, was writing to a group of Christians like us. If you're a Christian, I want you to see where Peter ends up. Have a look at the last few verses. Look at 10 to 12. I think he ends up in the very same place as Malachi does. Look at them. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You see, as you wait for the day of the Lord, what kind of people should you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. 
That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. Christian sisters and brothers, you see, the day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. Malachi says, we should be people of obedience to God's word, God's law. Well, the New Testament equivalent is spelt out here. We should be people who strive to live godly and holy lives. You see, if we are trusting in Jesus, if we are fearing God, we don't need to worry about the coming day of God's judgment. It's not something we need to fear. In fact, verse 12 says you can actually look forward to it. Why? Because it won't be a day of fear and shrinking back. We are God's people. We love our God. We have nothing to fear by his appearing, for his appearing will mean being with him forever. It will mean salvation and eternal presence. And whatever your equivalent is, you know, in terms of how you'd picture richness and lushness, right? it'll be like calves skipping around in an open field with nothing barring them, eating and living and dwelling in the presence of a God who has nothing but good for you. So look forward to that day, and as you do, strive to live holy and godly lives. Let's pray together. Father, in the face of uh, the coming judgment, we thank you that you are lo- that you are long suffering, not wanting any to perish. But Father, we thank you also that we do long and look forward to that new heaven and that new earth, the home of righteousness. So Father, as we look forward to this, help us to make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with you. Thank you that your patience means salvation. Father, we thank you for these things. We thank you for the book of Malachi. We thank you for the things we've learnt from it. And we pray that you would bring us with all your saints to share in the great blessing of your presence on that day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.